Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, thank you very much for coming on this uh, beautiful spring day to uh, La Trobe. This is a joint venture event between uh, La Trobe China Studies Department and uh, La Trobe Asia. So welcome, and it's great to see so many people here. So happy birthday. People's Republic. Uh, in 1949, the population of China was 550 million. Today it is 1.4 billion. Then the gross domestic product per head was an average 50 US dollars. Today it is $10,000. Life expectancy was 36 years. Today it is 76. We say in titling today's event that the PRC's success is surprising, in part because of the comparison with its former big brother, the USSR. The Soviet Union fell apart in 1991 after only 69 years. Many, including some in the Soviet-run Comintern itself, originally believed that communism was a European solution to a European problem and could not be successfully transplanted to Asia. The PRC of today continues to use many of the rituals and symbols, such as the hammer and sickle, that had their origins in those early European revolutionary years. But of course, famously came to power thanks substantially to Mao Zedong's shift of focus from industrial proletariat to the so-called peasantry with a landowner class being to some extent invented to suit Marxist choreography or orthography. The PRC has largely succeeded by wrapping itself around China, the great Chinese civilization and people, its history, its present and its future. It might be said that it is the Chinese people who have in recent decades seized their opportunity to emerge from poverty and to prosper. But to seek to differentiate the Chinese people or China from the PRC is perceived as a besetting sin. Indeed, the party has done such a fantastically successful job at rewriting and controlling history that for most people brought up in the PRC, China's allegedly unique century of foreign humiliation and all the wickedness apparently unleashed by or facilitated by the Kuomintang, uh, founded by Sun Yat-sen during its decades in power, Decades also, I would add in brackets, of growing modernity and cosmopolitanness in China would seem to have been redeemed, to use the appropriately theological term, by the victory of the Red Army in 1949. Any negative since then, Great Leap Forward, Cultural Revolution, Tiananmen, Xi Jinping's purges and surveillance and controls and so on, tend to be perceived as necessary collateral damage in order for China to emerge in its full glory. A friend whose identity I can't reveal here, but who grew up in the PRC, told me yesterday that it is crystal clear to me that we mainlanders don't know that we can fight for our rights, but instead believe we have to trust our lives to a saviour or son of heaven to guide us, protect us and give us a good life, even at the possible loss of freedom or dignity." Close quotes. Not everyone feels so fatalistic, though. 
on this day 20 years ago, when I was in Beijing for the 50th anniversary of the PRC, I struggled to find a bar open that evening, but was rewarded when in that bar, I, the bar I did discover, the singer in a Chinese punk band told us, there's nothing to say but this. And then they got underway with a wild version of Bob Dylan's Blowing in the Wind. Today's parade down Chang'an to Tiananmen especially clearly underlines how, despite the PRC's undoubted material success and its anticipated global glory in Xi Jinping's new era, which seeks to encompass all that is best in the past 70 years, eliding the former marked disjuncture between the Mao era and Deng's reform and opening era, the party still can't bring itself to trust the people of China. It still doesn't feel comfortable or secure in its own skin, in its own legitimacy narrative. Uh, the parade has the PLA, the party's army of course, not China's, at its centre. Specially honoured attendees include the Hong Kong police sergeant, surnamed Lau, who was filmed pointing a Remington shotgun at protesters in Kwai Chung during recent demonstrations. He told fellow officers, our country is cheering up the Hong Kong police with the National Day celebration. I will just represent you guys by attending with nine others. But the public has been missing. On special occasions, the party, like this, the party demonstrates how nervous it remains about trusting the Chinese people even to join its celebrations, by barring direct access even to watching the parade by anyone not officially vetted. Most people in China are looking forward to this week as one of the country's two Golden Week holidays, but she, the party's general secretary, his core role, is setting a more serious tone in order to counter with his long-term socialist vision growing concerns about the slowing of the economy, the pervasive domestic surveillance and ever-tightening control technologies, and the increasingly existential contest with the US. She himself, when his family was sent into the countryside during the Cultural Revolution to punish his reform-minded father, Li Zhongchun, instead of blaming the party or Mao personally for capricious cruelty, determined to respond by becoming redder than red always placing the party's interests first so that he might never himself be deemed remiss. Recently, he stressed at the Central Party School the importance of struggle, using the, that word 50 times in his speech. Posters have been plastered across the capital, quoting Xi, don't forget the original intention, stick to the mission. The heart of the party's mission was and remains to stay in power. Mission accomplished gloriously. Would Chinese people have become more prosperous if the communists had not won the civil war? Such hypotheticals can't be conclusively answered. In recent decades, vast numbers of Chinese people have tasted prosperity. Though it remains unknowable how far the credit should go to the ruling party, how far to the individuals and families of China seizing their opportunity with zeal. China still has a way to go to catch up with its neighbours who developed accountable governments with independent courts as they emerged from rural poverty post-World War II. South Korea's average GDP per person remains three times that of China, Japan's four times, Taiwan's 
2.5 times, Singapore 6.5 times, and Hong Kong, though still manifestly struggling on that accountability front, five times. Only the elderly have known any world but a communist one, and none are permitted to anticipate anything else. This has in the last 30 years provided a stability, whose flip side is control. It's authoritarian structures, it's infrastructure capacities, it's stores of cash, are highly seductive for developing states and especially for their leaders. It's more purposeful and far-reaching than the USSR ever was as it seeks to leverage its large migrant populations overseas while itself resisting accepting migrants. So far, the PLC hasn't run out of puff like many 70-year-olds, but taking the credit for everything that's gone right for China over 70 years and beyond means also taking the responsibility for what goes wrong. In the last week, for instance, the price of pork, the core protein for most Chinese people, soared 10% as swine, finger, swine fever continues to savage the industry. Little will be said in public or even on social media, but there may be irritable mutterings over many a holiday dinner this week. An historic anniversary such as today's is viewed in China as both a tonic and a time of danger. The parade looks great on TV, helps Xi cement his open-ended rule of China, deterring malcontents and showing off the PRC's glorious new era. But nothing has been allowed to go wrong. All risk has to be expunged. Glory, yes. Power, yes, in spades. But trust, which is essential for the social contract, for individuals or business, or creativity to flourish, not quite. So thank you very much for hearing my remarks. And now I'm going to um, introduce our first speaker. Um, two of us who are speaking uh, have been born not in republics, but in, uh, what should I call them, people's monarchies. <laughs> Jerry in Australia, myself in English, and the other two speakers you'll find out, um, uh, Baogang and Delia, uh, born in the People's Republic. First of all, uh, He Baogang, who's the Alfred Deakin Professor and Chair in International Relations at Deakin University, uh, widely known for his work on democratization in China, now on security, regionalism, and widely known for his common sense. I would like to take this opportunity to thank the Trouble to organize that. So I, I would like to focus on the special issues today is look at the long-term issues, the party state constitutionalism. That is a matter is really important. Um, so if we look at this uh, West uh, competitive politics, largely focus on this presidential system, Westminster systems. And there have been a lot of study on the authoritarian systems, but uh, largely this uh, party state system as a branch of the authoritarian system has not been studied uh, uh, substantively. And I think that's uh, really uh, for us to understand the Chinese politics in its own term we need to understand the orange development characteristic of this Chinese party state. The matter is so important, I think, because the Australian foreign policy towards China 
largely based on assumption. As the assumption that Chinese authoritarian system will end one day, will be transformed into democratic system. That assumption largely politician public hold. But that assumption might be questionable in the light of this Chinese current development. One of the issues, if we look at this Chinese party st uh, state, so currently uh, we, we are celebrating this uh, 70 years. So the Chinese, uh, the, uh, the Chinese party system has kind of lived more than 70 years and uh, suppress, surpass the record of the former Soviet Union. So that the Chinese party system so far is the most powerful party state in the world, is the most richest party state in the world, and the most dynamic party state in the world. It, it's, it's, so we should not underestimate its dynamic, its longevity. So the issue is to what extent Chinese party system might be live more than 100 years. Now this question is, should be tested in the future. But that is the assumption I think Australia should have. Rather than you expect China will collapse one day, then transform into democratic system. So we have to cope, uh, deal with this uh, party system of the China. That's a reality. So that is, I, I think, I will try to uh, understand this uh, Chinese party uh, state system. So what I do is because I, I, I've been invited by this uh, Hong Kong journal write something for celebrating this Chinese, uh, think about this Chinese the 70 years anniversary. So I write the very long essay. They give me extra space, the kind of 20,000 words. So what I do is I, I only very shortly uh, highlight the several key points in my Chinese article. So first I will briefly discuss characteristics of the party state system. Then I will address this very important issue. How much constitutional components or elements does this party state system have? So from Western assumption, usually normally party state, as a party state, this constitution is uh, uh, it's, it's kind of empty words. It's a wish. It's a, there's a nothing we can talk about constitutionalism. But I would like to say to ask this question: Actually, how much constitution components does this party system have? This is very important. After understanding, then I will briefly look at the future development. So, the briefly the characteristic of the party state system, the fundamental system of PRC in the past seventy years is an extension, revision, and development of the party state system of former Soviet Union. And it is also a kind of based on Chinese imperial dynasty. There's, within this party state system, there we can easily identify so many uh, imperial elements there. Zheng Yunian, for example, he said this Chinese Communist Party is a modernized organization, imperial power. So the, the, he understands the CCP as a modern version of imperial power. So that's he tried to connect this uh, dynast imperial power structure with the contemporary Chinese political structures. 
So Communist parties in the China is an in, in, institutional innovation in the sense of, if you look at the Chinese history, over the 5,000 years, that's kind of always dynastic. But in the modern times, suddenly they discover this party, establish a party, empower the party, let party control state. So this is the modern innovation. And uh, the, the party itself actually is a state. When we talk about party state, we should understand the party itself is a state. The party has a membership over the 90 million, and uh, the standing committee member of the party organization at all levels of CCP also serve as the leadership position in various government agencies. A standing committee meeting is like a cabinet meetings. So the party controls the party machine, the SOEs, and the social organization. And one important, important is that the party itself is the largest social organization, a political society. So when we're talking about the state societal relation, people always focus on the lowest party in the state. But overlook this society itself, the largest social organization is party. And uh, what we say, this is a really con con is kind of follows the Chinese historical pattern. Uh, the emperor has a large power. The prime minister in the old kind of imperial system is weak. The same is that today is that you have a strong party secretary, a weak prime minister. So this is probably is kind of the one of the key feature of party state. Except this Hua Guofeng at that time, his short period, he's a uh, he took, he took the, uh, the uh, position of, as a party secretary as well as prime minister. So the distribution of power between strong secretary and weak prime minister is a vivid portrayal of the system. Mao Zedong and Zhou Enlai, and uh, this the kind of provide a classical version of the old party leader and the prime minister in the contem contemporary party state system. Late Jiang Zemin and Li Peng, uh, Jiang Zemin and Zhu Yongji, Hu Jintao, Wen Jiabao, currently Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang, all follow this classical framework of model pattern. That is the strong party secretary and the weak prime minister. And the, the people kind of talking comments on this current Xi Jinping, this kind of, kind of retreat, as, uh, kind of back from the separation of the party and the government. But, but people forgot, actually, the unity of the party and the state is kind of constantly is, 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 is a DMA in the Chinese political system. The, 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 the party has the leadership powers. The government exercises executive powers. So the two set of institutions and positions have a division of labor, but a leader often serves concurrently. And uh, one of the very important, Deng Xiaoping vigorously advocated separation party from the government. So did Zhao Ziyang. But the, the, the purpose of Deng Xiaoping is to weaken power of Hua Guofeng, because at that time, Hua Guofeng occupied two positions, party secretary and the position of prime minister. When you said you need to separate, that means force Hua Guofeng to give up his position of prime minister to Zhao Ziyang. 
So this can behind the uh, um, this uh, the uh, separation uh, party and the politics. Under leadership of Xi Jinping, we see this trends of unity, trends kind of uh, re-emphasize unity of the party and the government, and in particular in this currently in the SOE state-owned enterprises in the rural area, in the village leadership, everywhere. So the, one of the key features of this party's uh, uh, state system is absence of the con constraint of the power, in particular constraint, constitutional constraint of the uh, top leadership's power. So the, 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 the party state lacks the rest restriction of the superior leaders. And the four major organizations in Chinese political system, the party organization, the government, the, the People's Congress, and the political consultative meeting, constitutes an internal power balance and a control mechanism. But they are not constitutionally constrained top leaders. So currently, the, the, the media, the uh, church religion does not exercise any constraint on the top leader, except the country we can see is American. Today, play, play the role as the largest opposition party in the China. And uh, so, so that's the kind of uh, issues uh, we're talking about this uh, main characteristic of the party state. Let me focus on this, how much constitution, constitution components does the party state system have? So later back, he discussed this, the, the, the concept that people's sovereignty is embedded in the National People Congress and the Chinese political consultative meetings. So those two organizations kind of play important role. Uh, uh, March each year they hold a regular meeting that's a symbolically they express the idea of people's sovereignty. And uh, then there's a key issue is very interesting there's a distribution norm that is uh, how to allocate a key political position to standing member uh, pr uh, uh, bureaus. After 14 party congress in 1992, four standing members of political bureaus hold the four key positions in the party, the state, National People Congress, and the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference. So that's kind of framework of the party state constitutionalisms. And then we also see this China tried to kind of build up certain this succession law. One of them is the age limits law. That is, the age limits is that a standing political bureau member at age of 67 or be below can stay, and the, any age at 68 or above must go. So this, this age limit has been followed for several, four times. But then the key question to what extent Xi Jinping will follow it. So this is the issue, this is abolish of two-term rules. So two-term rule has been practiced twice, but then the, uh, in the last year, March, those two terms was abolished. If they abolished, that means the age limits were also violated. Um, 
Then the, this, uh, one of the very interesting phenomena is that China has been resisting blood rules. So the blood rules, the rule of the blood has been kind of practiced, a common rule for imperial powers. Imperial powers, succession policy follows the, the rule of the blood. But then when we're talking about Republic of China, there's a key term, Republic. This Republic notion carries with a fundamental legitimate new principle. That is, that is abolish the rule of the blood. So the, this is a fascinating, very important the cultural fundamental change happened in China. So despite the Chen Yun, he went after 1989, he said we need to uh, uh, recruit more the, the second um, generation of the, uh, this voting leader to be, uh, to, to be a new successors. But this group, there's what they call the Princess Party, Princess, so large, it's difficult to uh, kind of pin down a concrete criteria like the former imperial dynasty did. So it's, it's, it's difficult to sustain this, uh, this kind of bloody rule. So, so far the party state, the most party state abolish the rule of the blood, except in North Korea. North Korea is really the exception. So, so I don't think I have a time to go to the other one, but let's just go to final future development. So where the, uh, the party state move towards and improve its version of constitutionalism. So there are some rules for the party still to improve. And the, although you kind of currently use this uh, modern electronic technology to fall into a post-totalitarian state. So the, because time limits, I just very briefly, short term, and uh, I think this is in the digital age, the party state suddenly discovered they have a wonderful weapon from this modern technology. So they can effectively rule in the China kind of for, for quite a long time. And this kind of modern technology also weakening impetus, impetus for development of the party state constitutional system. But in the long term, I think, the currently this abandon of two term uh, is a short, uh, uh, it will not last long. And, uh, and in the long term, to improve and perfect the party state constitutionally, especially the rule of the secession politics, Probably is the best is kind of to prolong political life of the party state politics. So if you if we use the uh, Chinese official language, this uh, uh, Ronald mentioned earlier before, it's kind of inevitable requirement of long term ruling of the Communist Party of China. So I'm uh, think this still in the long term. That's the Chinese uh, political party state will involve towards their direction. So if that is the case, so the issue will go back early this year. To what extent China, the political life will be exceed 100 years? It's a really interesting issue. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks so much, Baogang. Always great new ideas and uh, 100 years. And so everyone's on notice that uh, 30 years from now we'll reconvene and uh, be very interesting to see, see uh, what's coming true. Our next speaker, Jerry Groot, 
uh, senior lecturer in uh, Chinese studies at uh, University of Adelaide. Uh, he's pursued uh, especially research on United Front work and the uh, party's challenge with the emergence of new classes and interest groups and so on. Look forward to hearing from you, Jerry. Thanks. Thank you very much. Um, I hope that some of mo most of you have a little bit of a background in Chinese politics because I've got a bit of a whirlwind history tour. I was asked for a, for a title and I thought, who lost China? I thought, um, because we're hearing a lot of that talk lately, right? And then I remembered that we're supposed to be talking about the surprising success of Chinese communism. So I thought I'd better put that back in. <clears throat> and because uh, I'm, a bit, I'm, I'm a most well known for talking about one of these magic weapons, I thought I'd better talk about the other two because today is the day when armed force has been out in force, right? So the second secret weapon is not so secret, it's very public and um, I mean, I'm one of those people, oh, isn't that a fantastic rocket? <laughs> I, I will admit to being a little bit impressed by, um, by the hardware and, uh, and that sort of thing. But <clears throat> so who lost China? Or in this case, because of Xi Jinping in particular, why Mao's three magic weapons still matter, right? Well, that's me. I'm related to a tree, apparently. But okay, so a, a quick flick through these uh, these three issues. Uh, the first is who lost, because we're he hearing this all the time. Uh, most recently, we've got experts saying that you know Trump needs to do something different, and uh, if we go a little bit further, we see that. Um, some people in Australia are saying we need to do something a little bit different. Um, but the answer is very simple, right? Who lost China? And the, it's based on a false premise. It was never the West to lose. It was never the Americans to lose. It's ba that, that's based on a myth that should have died, but it's, a, it's one of those zombie myths that doesn't want to go away. Uh, <clears throat> and one of, between the 1940s, 1920s and 1949, yeah, there was overtures to, uh, to America, it's true. But that's because the Communist Party needed to reduce the cost of victory. It needed to weaken the Guomindang so that it could take power through military might. It had to take power by force. There was no talk of uh, a negotiated settlement because that would mean that the party would have to cope with the nationalists and they didn't want that. Now, post Mao, we've seen a return to policies like those of the 1950s. Remember new democracy, the long-term coexistence of classes, the long-term coexistence of different forms of production, all those things were, that was the basic united front policy between 1949 and 1956, which came to an abrupt halt when Mao said, oh, we've done such a great job, we've achieved the basic transition to socialism, and then he started to get adventurous and uh, a bit impatient as, as um, imminent. Uh... Anyway, anyway, he got a bit impatient. That's what we need to know. Uh, and the idea was it, to build the, the new, new democracy was about building uh, economic might, building uh, infrastructure, building knowledge, raising education levels, building technology skills, etc. right? And then we had Mao's with the Great Leap Forward, and then we had the Cultural Revolution, and a lot of these things um, didn't go so well. But it's a myth to think also that things went terribly badly economically after the Great Leap Forward. In fact, 
they didn't. It's just that between population growth and other factors, the actual improvement in the economy didn't show through in the ways that it should have. Uh, <clears throat> but the important thing here is Xi Jinping seems even more committed than his predecessors to this idea of a strong and prosperous China. Right? That's why today we saw all that military hardware on show. And the other thing is, those three magic weapons that helped the Communist Party come to power, United Front Work, um, Struggle, Party Building, what have we seen since Xi Jinping came to power? A renewed emphasis on party building, a renewed emphasis on ideology. It matters. A lot of people, they go to China and they think, oh, it's all capitalist. It's not really communist at all. But the Communist Party, 90 million strong, it's still a communist party. It's still a Leninist party. It still has uh, a, a goal, a mission of struggling to achieve socialism and prosperity and, and national strength. <clears throat> it, that ideology still matters, and that's been made very clear under Xi Jinping. And all three secret weapons are really important, right? So here we go, quick, quick flick through uh, 1939. So <clears throat> one of the reasons was that the Guomindang didn't have a United Front policy, it didn't have party building, and it didn't have an integrated army. It had a hodgepodge of ideologies, it had a hodgepodge of armies, and uh, Chiang Kai-shek never really managed to keep them uh, entirely uh, united. So <clears throat> these magic weapons, which had proved themselves so well under Mao, are really back in fashion under, under uh, Xi Jinping. So quickly, give you a united front work. So united front work allows the Communist Party to relate to all these groups outside of its ostensible constitution, constituents of peasants, workers, soldiers, right? It, it gave a way, it gave a theoretical way of justifying cooperation with capitalists, with landlords, whatever the, whatever the need uh, determined. Uh, Post-1949, it was used to successfully socialise industry and commerce. It was very important because people, uh, it's, it went relatively smoothly and very successfully. And the economic growth between 49 and 56 as a result of these policies was very substantial. And people's living standards rose very dramatically in that time. <clears throat> uh, it was revived after 1978 to attract investment and knowledge from overseas Chinese, and it kick-started, this, this is with the overseas Chinese in particular, it kick-started the reform process, right? Some of them aren't doing quite as well in the public relations stakes as they used to. As, uh, so <clears throat> under Xi Jinping, this is really important. Armed struggle, I don't think we need to spend very much time on that, but Xi Jinping is very clear, he's re-centralised uh, control of the army under his control, and also the People's Armed Police, which is very important. The People's Armed Police, uh, how big is it now? Three million strong, I think. And many of those people are soldiers who were taken, who moved out of the army and they just simply moved into the People's Armed Police. But they're, they're trained for uh, you know, riots and 
quite substantial armed conflict if necessary, but they're not really uh, the military anymore. That's important. Now, party building is a thing which uh, people just don't take seriously enough. But we've, uh, Rowan mentioned the 50 mentions of struggle. That's important. Uh, and the reason is it gives a coherence and uh, why we might think that Herbal Gung's idea that maybe another 30 years, well, I think this emphasis on these factors allows a cohesion which other parties didn't have. The revolutionary, uh, was it the Institutional Revolutionary Party of Mexico lasted 70 years, but they didn't have this. Right? The Communist Party in the Soviet Union didn't have this to anywhere near the same extent. Anyway, but changes in circumstance mean changes in ideology and practice, which Delia will talk about a little bit later to some extent. Uh, and the other thing is we've got the party's disciplinary measures to help keep people uh, along the right path as much as possible. And if you look at the history of these things under Mao, under Deng, uh, under his successors and now under Xi Jinping, these, it's been very flexible, very pragmatic, and very successful, right? As far as uh, why did we, why are we here in 2019? It's because these things work, and they work at making them work. <clears throat> so the thing that I asked myself um, when I was thinking about this topic was: Are we at the end of the initial stage of socialism? Hands up, those people who remember the theory of the initial stage of socialism. Only three of us. <laughs> right? That's, uh, that's it. It was more important. It was like it was the, uh, the ideology, the idea, the theoretical framework. It's on the other, it's, which helped uh, justify a return to the policies of, similar to those of the 1950s, the early 50s. right? And the, maybe... This um, return to a more dogmatic socialism, a more centralised party, a greater, a far, far greater emphasis on control of associations. And who didn't hear the news last week about Zhejiang provincial government deciding to send in 100 carters to the top 100 companies in Zhejiang to better liaise with the top businesses in Zhejiang province? one of the richest provinces in China. Uh, <clears throat> they said, of course, that's so they can, co they can uh, liaise better with the party. But that's exactly what they did to the law firms about five or ten years ago. And all those law firms are now firmly under party control, one way or another. Um, <clears throat> now, I was thinking, why have we returned to this sort of level of a control? Because maybe we've reached the, as far as Xi Jinping and... Uh, his, his ideology um, tutors are concerned, maybe we've reached that level of productive capacity because now China is the world's second largest economy. The average income is, or the GDP per, per capita is $10,000. That's quite a successful uh, uh, development. So we've got the return to ideology, just like we did after 1956. Xi Jinping thought as the core, socialism and communism as goals. Those things, 
I remember reading years ago stuff about China's turning neoliberal. Can you imagine? There was all this lecture, and there was all these people in China saying, China's going neoliberal. They should have come to Australia to find out what that meant. In fact, it doesn't mean that much in Australia. It meant even less in the, it meant even less in the Chinese case. But the idea of socialism, uh, the, the party's very aware of the problems caused by the rising inequality, for example. Now, how are we going to change that? How are we going to tackle those things? How are we going to provide a pension system? How are we going to cope? Uh, we've got the constant evoking of enemies. Um, <clears throat> I love this little graphic that I found here. It's a, a certain hostile forces is the expression that we, we find constantly. Uh, <clears throat> we've got the, right, the, the return of United Front work from taking into account uh, difference to using United Front work for assimilation purposes and we see that with religion and we see that in the case of uh, NGOs we see that in the case of certain firms like the law firms I mentioned that that's a very good example that I know a bit about and uh, so that's the sinification and we've got this renewed emphasis on materialism and atheism and the, the increased control over the PLA and the, P, and the People's Armed Police, as I mentioned. Okay. Because the one thing we know under Xi, government, the military, society and schools, north, south, east and west, the party leads them all. It's got a, it's got a ring to it, hasn't it? See, I, I, I used to think that the reason the communists won the revolution was they had all the best songs. And that wasn't an accident either. They went to a lot of, they went to a lot of trouble to get the good songs, right? They, they worked at that. Okay, so, um, so another 70 years. Herbal Gung was a bit, more, a bit more constrained. He said 30 years. I think, what about another 70 years? Well, I think we've seen a tremendous amount of success of the post-78 reforms, right? But we've seen the tolerance and accommodation that was part of that disappear. We've seen the accommodation... Uh, required the retreat of the party and state and increased interest on merit. That's going backwards. Key changes are needed if China's going to avoid the middle income trap, right? And Xi Jinping, we keep talking about Xi Jinping because he's so obvious, uh, seems to assume that repoliticization and party control plus intense surveillance and social credit, those things that Ke Baogang mentioned, will reduce corruption, increase stability and stability. But I've got my doubts for reasons I hope are self-evident. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much for that brilliant presentation, Jerry. Um, so we've got three magic weapons here. So we've had Baogang, uh, we've had Jerry, and now our third magic weapon is Delia. Delia is senior lecturer at uh, Melbourne University and... Um, her research is focused on political discourse, ideology, patterns of governance under the party, and especially recently on normative patterns under Xi Jinping. So please uh, welcome uh, Didi Lin. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to start by thank you. Uh, thanks to Chok for organizing this, and thank you for coming on this wonderful evening. I'm going to give a, a slightly maybe different picture 
of uh, uh, what's happening in China and how I interpret China. So it's a different approach uh, to what Jerry and uh, Professor He have uh, just described. My approach is a humanities approach. Uh, I work on culture, language, people, human life, uh, that sort of things, uh, to look at the pattern of governance and how uh, we make sense of what is happening in China. A lot of things that we perhaps disagree or agree on, um, and a lot of things that we may argue uh, with what China is doing. But then before we do that, we need to understand where that comes from so that we know where the conversation begins. And especially today that China is turning into a country uh, that is very different uh, from what we knew prior to Xi Jinping's time. We thought we knew how to deal with China. We knew where China was going. And um, I must say that I'm slightly in disagreement with uh, Professor He's uh, judgment at the beginning when he said that the West has got China wrong. It's not the West who's got China wrong. Everybody has got China wrong, including a lot of Chinese people themselves. And I've heard so many different views on China from within China. Uh, people were saying that, well, China is going to go democratic. And even today, people are still saying that, but with a bit of uh, um, perhaps pessimi uh, pessimism, but still. Um, definitely prior to Xi Jinping's time. And even when Xi Jinping first took over power, uh, people still had that hope that China would become a different country. So China has been at crossroads many, many times. But here we are. Two days ago, uh, if you have watched um, this great ceremony uh, where 36 Chinese heroes uh, were awarded by President Xi Jinping himself, uh, very first time, the highest national awards, the Order of the Republic and also national, uh, national honorary titles, 36 of them. And one of them, uh, only one of them was from uh, the basic education sector, uh, Yu Yi, who is very well known, who is a very well known educator. And in this brief introduction, I found that was quite interesting, that the brief introduction, uh, when I was walking on the stage receiving her award, uh, the brief introduction said that she was awarded this fantastic award because she has held fast to Suzhi education. Yu Yu has been known for integrating Chinese language, she's a Chinese language teacher, by the way, in the, in the, in the secondary school, and she's been known for integrating Chinese language teaching uh, with moral education, but she has, her name had never been associated with Suzhi education until being in, uh, in this award ceremony two days ago. Suzhi is a discourse that enjoyed prominence in the early 80s, and I spent about four years studying this discourse because I found it was so fascinating that how come all of a sudden it became such a prominent discourse, become such prominent language just within a matter of, of a few years. The word Suzhi roughly translated as human quality uh, or qualities. That's a very rough translation. The word could be traced back to the third century BC. But if you look at thousands of uh, history or thousands of uh, literature in China that you found they were seldom used and only maybe rarely used uh, in some of the poems. And the word was translated back into China in the late 19th century from Japanese, which was a translation. The word was a translation from German. But then for over about 100 years, that word again was seldom used until the 80s. 
And within only a few years, less than five years' time, this word had become so prominent, and it became a prevalent cultural and political idea that it was used to explain almost every social problem in China. So whenever there was a problem, be it、uh, anything, there was a suji problem. Whenever there was a problem in China, there was part of a person's suji that is in question, and also maybe the suji of the collective is the problem. And where do you go for resolving that problem? Education. So by 1985, that word has expanded so much that there were so many compounds. That have developed from this term. Basically, if there's any problem, that means that you can actually use a type of suji to explain it. And then, from 1986, another development happened. That is, a lot of scholars that were studying the structure, the model, the theory of suji to formally theorize it. And then, in 1988, that word was formulated to. To talk about education, 1999, a formal education policy called Suji Education was formulated. What I found particularly fascinating is that what it means to governance. And what I would argue is that the development of Suji, this expansion of that term, actually shaped a kind of epistemological and also linguistic resource or foundation that a particular type of governance is built upon. And we need to go a little bit further to talk about what that governance is all about. We have to go back to old Confucianism, and Confucianism as an ism has been interpreted so many times, reinvented, manufactured. Many people can give a long lecture on what Confucianism is, but I'm more interested. I'm interested in what kind of governance does Confucian. The, is the feature of Confucian governing, and this is what it is. This is a, a three-layered reading of a Confucian governing. It starts with a dream, and Confucius call it Datong, grand unity, an ideal society of perfect, absolute harmony, equality, and it's an ideal society where everybody wants to go. But what Confucius did was that, and also. Following Confucius is to say that in order to achieve that ideal society, that is possible, that is absolutely possible. All you need to do is this. The solution is here, and the solution for Confucius was a kind of combination of politics, education, and transformation to say、uh, that human beings can all be can all be malleable, and it can all be transformed. And also, there was a set of moral codes that human that human beings need to abide by. If they do that, they will be fine. But how do they do that? In Confucianism, a very important concept that we keep forgetting is li, which is decorum and propriety, ritual propriety. And Confucian Kana has got a whole book on it. So, if you do, if you perform those things, perform that behavior. And each behavior says something about you as a human being. If you do all that, if everybody does that, we can get to that ideal society. And if you don't do it, you're a bad person. You should be excluded from society because you are destroying this whole mission towards that ideal goal. 
And what's in it in the center? The reason that I'm drawing a circle here, a circle is fantastic, but what's in the middle are two triangles. So I'm saying this is a paradoxical model because the more that we develop, the more we develop this part, the less we can actually reach the ideal goal. And the more we develop this, the less we can reach. That's my, that's my argument anyway. That's why I'm using different shapes to describe different parts of Confucian governing. And in the middle is shame, sense of shame. Shame is absolutely the emotional uh, sort of foundation of Confucianism, which means that if you transgress, if your behavior transgresses prescribed boundaries, you should feel ashamed of yourself. And people around you should feel ashamed of you. And if you do it, if you somehow reach a certain uh, agreed on level, uh, then you should feel glorified and then you should be awarded uh, with some awards. So this is a Confucian uh, governing. What it means is that there is there was an ideal society that there, and then the rulers somehow, who are also moral teachers, have got it. They know how to reach that, and every, what the population should do is to follow that. So the ruler is the saint, the moral, the moral leader, and that's why in this type of governing, political legitimacy, if we describe it in modern terms, and moral authority are two sides of the same coin. And the more political power that this ruler assumes, the more moral authority that the ruler needs to establish. And if you look at the history, and of course, another very important part of a, a theory that, or, or ancient theory we need to understand is a legalist idea. So legalist idea or legalism has a very different way of talking about government. They don't have the ideal society, but they don't trust people. In the Confucian governing, there's no trust on people either. There was a trust in the saviour, but there's no trust in the general public of their own ability to be moral agents to actually live a moral life. There's no trust in that. There's always a need for a moral leader to lead that. And this moral leader supposedly is also the political leader. If we look at uh, the history of uh, the PRC, I'm going to uh, nick that. I can add many, many names in this model to see that how from the Republican era, if we talk about uh, the fall from the fall of the Qin Dynasty, and, uh, and, and, and today, uh, doesn't matter what kind of political agendas uh, that those leaders propose, Moral construction is always very important to politics. And also so important that actually the very goal for politics is to transform the population. And it's just that everyone does it slightly differently, which I will explain very briefly. So under Mao Zedong, it was extreme. This kind of a model requires civilizing center, requires um, recognizing some people as having the capacity to actually have the absolute answer to all the social problems. So under Mao Zedong, then people were divided uh, into different sort of classes. So this rectification of um, the individuals has been was implemented to the extreme. So as 
the, the molding of mines have been practiced or implemented to the extreme uh, that there was enormous violence, as we knew, during Cultural Revolution. And before that, uh, the Yan'an rectification campaign basically was an ultimate remolding of people's minds. And then from Deng Xiaoping onwards, the tactics have changed because at that time economic development was the key. Now in this Confucian governing, I call it in modern terms, when, we, when that's implemented in modern times, uh, when we, uh, as Professor He uh, said that this kind of modernization of those imperial ideas, uh, then this idea of citizenship comes in and this kind of imperial governing translated in modern terms becomes something I call transformational citizenship in the sense that citizens are all subject to transformation, everyone. Now, from Deng Xiaoping prior to Xi Jinping era, this was this kind of uh, transformational citizenship was exercised in slightly different ways. There were moral campaigns, um, but they are separate from law. There were moral campaigns, and also there was narrative building. There was also building of words such as suji, such as civilization, building of these discourses to establish that moral authority of the party or whoever implement the civilizing process. In this transformational, in this paradigm, in this Confucian paradigm, because it is, works on given an ideal, uh, an image or vision of an ideal society and give a solution to reaching that ideal, Because the rulers have got an idea of how to reach that, so there was no, there was no um, tolerance to transgressing the boundaries. In the Confucian column, the four, pub, the four crimes that are publishable by death are the crimes that transgress, transgress the boundaries. So in, in the imperial time, rulers know that it's important to control the words to control the way that people speak. So actually different views were considered as floods. They need to be controlled. And there were only two ways of controlling it. So controlling the, or, or managing, or managing the views or the words of the people are taken as a, as a metaphor of flood control. So there were only two ways. One is to build dams, to control, to contain, and to block. The other way is to build canals, to redirect people's views. So if we look at how different discourses have developed, including suji, including suji education, including civilization, including harmonious society, including even, even China dream today, we see the same pattern of how those words, if you look at the development, the socialization process of those discourses, which carry a certain idea, the idea that there is ideal society, the idea that there are people who have the absolute answer to realizing this society, the idea that people are subject to transformation and remolding, and they can be remolded, they can be transformed, all go through these four processes. And through those four processes, a certain idea is formed. The idea that 
For example, Suzhi, there is something called Suzhi. Whenever there are problems, it is Suzhi that should be called into question. And then when there are problems, that it is education that needs to be called in, in question. So in Xi Jinping time, what has changed? One change is that there are 12 designated core socialist values. But of course, again, this idea is not new. Moral codes have always been there in the pure times, in contemporary times. But this time, morality is connected with law. In the sense that as part of building of Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for the new era, a new style political party system. And a part of it is a redefinition of rule of law, socialist rule of law. And two main characteristics of the socialist rule of law is one party leadership and the other is amalgamation of law and morality. And a part of it, again, amalgamation of law and morality is not new, but what is new is, is that now the six, uh, the 12 socialist core values are required to be incorporated into the entire legal and judicial processes. It changes the language of law. Another thing that has happened that we also need to bear in mind is that with this type of transformational citizenship, it requires censorship and surveillance. So prior to Xi Jinping time, what has been done also is one is uh, censorship surveillance, the building of, uh, of uh, a gold shield uh, program. And the rationale for that is that because there were part of people whose suits are not that high, and in order to protect them from being corrupted, we need to build the wall. And another thing that was built prior to Xi Jinping time was also self-mutual uh, censorship. So this uh, institution uh, called Student Informant Institution was built in 2005 and is still in practice, uh, meaning that in education, in the education, in higher education sector, there are students who are employed, who are informants and who would report to the party authorities of what's happened in the classroom. But that's considered as democratic teaching by the government. So what we need to bear in mind is that with this type of governing, that a lot of words were reinvented and remanufactured and reframed. And a lot of things that perhaps do not make sense in liberal democracy makes perfect sense under this governing. And also, the resistance, resistance for people, there, there is resistance, but resistance is, is very small in the sense that a lot of people would buy that argument that because of the Suzhi issue, that it is important to have some sort of control surveillance um, in place. And another uh, aspect uh, is what, uh, uh, what Jerry just mentioned, sonalization of, of religion. Uh, this was uh, taken two days ago by a friend of mine from Hubei uh, province, uh, a temple. So uh, in 2000, from 2018, uh, all religious sites uh, must have four 
things on display. So the four things are, the first of all, the red flag, the Chinese flag. Um, the second one is the constitution. The third one is um, core socialist values. And the fourth is excellent Chinese traditional culture. So in this particular temple, uh, very interestingly, then the, there were two, there were four images in front of the in front of the temple, and uh, uh, so it's up to different religious uh, sites to choose what excellent Chinese culture that they would like to uh, display. So they have this particular temple have chosen Han Feizi and also Shangyang, the representatives of the legalist uh, tradition, uh, which is uh, quite interesting. And then on one side and on the other side, uh, there were two Buddhist masters uh, uh, statues, uh, images there in front of the temple. And the third one is education. So in under Xi Jinping, then in era that we see systematic uh, implementation of the teaching of uh, Confucian Confucian values. But in I've got my notes here. This is a this bit is quite interesting. Um, so there were two major projects. Uh, that were built in 2016. One is this massive building uh, at Olympic uh, Park. Uh, this is a center for Chinese traditional culture. And also another, another uh, major project that was completed in 2016 uh, was that the uh, education, the Ministry of Education has finally, after seven years, published a series of textbooks uh, to be on Confucian on traditional teaching, especially Confucian teaching, in to be implemented in schools. Um, and also, uh, the Ministry of Education has laid out aspects of Confucian teaching that is going to be focused on at different levels of education. So in starting from um, primary school, so in the First half of primary school, uh, so kids need to be taught of filial piety, uh, respect for the teachers, uh, love the classmates, good manners, and all that. So mannerism. And the second half of primary school, uh, then uh, the children were expected would be will be expected to understand to appreciate the sacrifice uh, made by righteous heroes uh, for the building of the nation and also for the national unity, and. And also, they should have developed um, a, um, a, a way of differentiating right from wrong, good from evil, beauty from ugliness, and shape correct outlook of life, and love the nation. And then in June, by, the, by junior high, uh, they should develop national pride and sense of belonging to the nation, respect cultural traditions of all ethnic um, groups, as well as understanding their common contribution to Chinese civilization. And so by the senior high, then uh, the students are expected to develop this idea of objective idea of looking at, the, looking at China and the world and understanding the dialectical unification between the fate of the nation and self-realization of an individual. And by the time they reach the university, the students are expected to correctly grasp the relationship between excellent traditional culture, 
standardized Marxism and also socialist core values. I think the challenge is that this whole, the way that the system, this kind of governing works is dependent on the idea uh, that the party has, is the all virtuous party and has the capacity to offer a solution to various social problems. But the challenge is, will the people be convinced? And I end here. Thank you. I'd like uh, to thank very much um, Ewan Graham and his team, uh, La Trobe Asia, and uh, John Makem and his team from uh, uh, China Studies Centre, La Trobe. And thank you very much for turning up and being so attentive. And please join me in, in thanking Delia Lin, Herbal Gan, and Jerry Group. Thank you. And when your head hits the pillow tonight, it's the China dream for you. <laughs>